Hey, Kuyo. Have you ever met someone who exudes leadership, is respected by everyone, or even inspires others to do things that they normally can't or wouldn't even try? Well, today's your lucky day. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Colonel Jordan Jones, an all-around great guy that everyone just absolutely loves to be around. This is a great podcast. I really enjoyed it, and I know you will too. Kuyon Classroom's in session, and I'm about to learn you a thing of three. I don't know how to put this, but I'm kind of a big deal. All right, bruh. Colonel. <laughs> Colonel Jordan Jones. How you doing, Jump, buddy? Man, good. Good to see you. Man, I'm so Not glad. Yeah, I know. I'm so glad I, I finally got you on the podcast. You and I did a podcast many moons ago. Me and Ray, me and Ray Gidry, we used to do like a little CrossFit podcast. Right, I remember. And we just kind of had some little Rudy Poot mics. You know, we didn't have everything set up, but we enjoyed podcasts and we were trying to do it. And you were nice enough to bless us with your presence back then. And Oh, thank you, man. Yeah, I had fun. Yeah. Once I got this kind of set up and we got some real good equipment here, I, I knew I had to get you back. Well, thanks, man. Good to be here. Yeah. I appreciate you showing back up yeah. again. So you and I, we've been friends for a long time through CrossFit, actually. Right. And a long time ago, I did a, a podcast with Zach, Zach Young. And we talked about that a little bit, about how you just make so many different relationships in CrossFit. And it's more more than just about fitness and doing this and doing that. But these relationships you're building with these strangers, if you will, hmm. you know, they, they kind of become family. And, Absolutely. And you've kind of been in the middle of that circle for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, even when we used to, we were in parody way back in the day right. when uh, CrossFit was there. As a matter of fact, that's kind of how I met you is because at the time your wife and your daughter was going and I was, was coaching it, there. That was, was, that was at parody? Yep. In parody. Okay. Yep. Your wife was there and I used to coach her at some of the nine o'clocks. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. Your daughter okay. Lauren was there every once in a while. Right, and then y'all kind of like traded memberships or something. So then you were going most of the time. Yeah, what what happened was she started talking about her how her knees stopped working well. Oh yeah, that that that'll happen that, sometimes. That was the answer. Yeah, but I mean the the good thing was uh, you know I kind of I used to coach in the morning, but I'd work out in the afternoons, and that's when you and I started working out together. So that's kind of yeah. been kind of been a, a fun journey. It's been ten years since you started, which. I think you might have started right before me. So if, if, if you were 10 years, I'm like right behind you. Uh, so, but that's just that's just crazy because I can't really picture, man, has it been 10 years already? Holy hey, cow. You know what's cool, though, kind of an interesting aside was I've been training following the, the principles of CrossFit for many years. And one of the guys that uh, he was on my staff in the military, Scott Welch, a great guy, um, he was in CrossFit for a while. And he's the one that turned me on to it. He said, hey, Colonel, come to just come to one workout and I guarantee you're going to be hooked. And he was right. And I yep. said, how cool is this, man? I've been doing this shit for years, but now all I have to do is show up and do the workout and go home. This is phenomenal. I, I remember Scott, Scott and his wife used to go. Scott went yeah. to the early classes, so I didn't get to see him too much. He was there at like the five or six o'clock in the morning, but his wife was there later. And I used to coach her sometimes and work out with her. But yeah, I, but I got to know Scott through there also. And then even when he used to work at Dow, uh, when I worked at Dow, which you actually worked at Dow for a little right. stint there too. 
Um, but yeah, just just great relationships and stuff like that. So you have obviously your beautiful wife who sometimes used to take care of our dogs. She's a bit of a dog lover, right? You, <laughs> yes, you guys, Look, you we, guys about, we have about 10 dogs in my house right now. Oh, it's like every none day. None of them are ours. It's all the time. It's I a know. zoo. Yeah. And between that and her watching kids before and after school, it, we have gates that, that divide up the house so they can't go to the back of the house where all the, where the bedrooms are located, but she doesn't, she separates them for feeding and stuff. And then when she's in her little sitting room, so she has a room as soon as you walk in her house on the left-hand side, so she can look out the window and watch the kids show up yep. for, the, for the parents dropping them off and then in the afternoon when they get on the bus. Yeah. So when she's sitting in there, I mean, she's like the Pied Piper. There are dogs all over the place, man. Yeah, I know. Like when we brought Maui over that one time and there was dogs <laughs> everywhere. He was in he was in dog heaven, boy, yeah. that's for sure. He yeah. had so many friends to play with. A little bit of stimulation there with all those dogs before him. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, but you also have two beautiful daughters. Yeah. Right. Uh, Lauren and Renee. And it's funny, too, because through our friendship, I've gotten to know them very well. Lauren, mostly because she was always at CrossFit and I was help training her for a while. And she's such a sweetheart. And yeah. her and I just kind of we, we formed a really good relationship early on just because she was really coachable. And that was one of the things that drew me to her and other athletes, because a lot of times people will listen, but they don't really try to implement. And that's fine. But the ones that really listen to everything you say is like, okay, well, I'm going to try it. Whether they're good at it or not, but they're still trying. Sure. That was one of the things that really drew me to her was, and she was very talkative, you know, talking to me like she'd been knowing me forever. Right. But the even funnier part is we didn't know Renee very well. The only time that we really saw Renee a whole lot was if she would come to some of the competitions or some of the Tough mutters. But right. she was the same thing. It's like every time I talk to her, she talked to me like I've been knowing her forever. Bless her heart. She's she's yeah, something special. She is. But she actually gave you a, a little bit of a treat recently, right? We have another addition to the family. Yes, she did. Oh, boy. Tell me about that, boy. Grandson, man. Yeah. Ooh, he's awesome. You know, you hear people say that your life changes when you have children, and we have three beautiful grown-up children. But it, there's just something different about having a grandchild. It just puts everything in a different perspective. And the, the joy we get from him is just as much as seeing Renee have that glow in her eyes, just as we did as young parents. Yep. And, you know, she's going to have to work through all the, the, the parenting things that, that we did, but it's just such a special bond with that grandchild. Um, and we just love him to death. Can't get enough time with him. Yeah. So how old is he now? It's, he's pretty uh, young. He's, he's about eight months. Oh, it's, it's been eight months already. Yeah. Oh, I tie, Look, time flies, that, I tell you. And that kid was growing with a full head of hair. That's like I don't know Ashlyn, how that happened. Well, Ashlyn and He's got Tyler. A on his head. Yeah, my two <laughs> both came out with a head full of hair. A head full of black hair. Yes. And it stayed it black for a while and then just kind of changed colors. And so also you have a son too who's uh he's at LSU. Yes. He? He's got about three semesters left and he's studying French. He wants to be a French teacher. I've, oh, no well, kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see that if that's what he does. I've, when we went there the first time for orientation, we met with the instructors, and I wanted him to listen to their perspective on what he might be able to do other than speaking, uh, teaching French. Okay. Because that was going to be my question: Is he just planning on being a yeah. teacher? Well, that's what it is now. I think um, he's going to consider doing something else, maybe, and teaching French on the side, or maybe being an interpreter for okay for a company or a corporation. So. We'll see. He'll figure it out. Okay. You're not actually from Louisiana, though, right? No. Where, where, where are you from exactly? From Omaha. Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, Nebraska. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, 
I guess that the reason I'm asking that is because I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but how in the world did you end up in Luling, Louisiana? Yeah, that's a good question because I remember as a teenager, what? so I went to uh, USL when it was that University for Slow Learners. <laughs> oh, jeez, here we go. Right. Or sensational lovers, it depends on your perspective, right? It could be both. Yeah, that's right. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh-huh. Um, but I remember as uh, as a teenager driving through Highway 90 all the way up to, to USL, remember driving through here and saying, man, who would ever live in this podunk town? Yeah. Now, here we are. We've been here know, right? about 18, 20 years or something about something like that. Yep. But yeah, so I was born in Nebraska. My dad was in the Navy. Don't ask me to, to make the tie between the Navy and, and, and Omaha, Nebraska. I don't remember. My family moved to New Orleans, and we lived uptown, uh, not far from Tulane, uh, ironically. And then we moved to uh, to Algiers, and that's where I grew up. I'm often fascinated with people that say, oh, yeah, I live in, uh, you know, whatever, South Louisiana, but I'm from Maine. And I'm just like, how the hell did you Where's get it? down here? Yeah. Like, I just don't, I don't get it. Pull the string but. on that. And it, and if you listen to, I don't have an accent from anywhere. So, I'm, I'm, well, again, I was, when we were one, my family moved to New Orleans. And so I grew up in New Orleans. I went to high school in Mississippi for five, six years at St. Stanislaus. Oh, you and went then, to St. Stanislaus. Okay. Yeah. Boarding yeah, school? We, we could get into that. Just, yeah, <laughs> okay. We can go you, there. Yeah, you was a little bit of a badass. Yeah, uh, so there, were some, there were some issues there, <laughs> okay. shall we say. Okay. Opportunities to excel. They bounded. I gotcha. um, and then went to... I uh, went to Lafayette, right? So, uh-huh. but, and then now I live here. I've lived in Baton Rouge. I lived in Greenwell Springs, but really don't have an accent from anywhere, I think. I mean, it's probably just a typical, it's almost like, so right here in this area, and I tell people this because people will comment on my TikTok all the time about my accent. And I think for me, I'm kind of a mix of that little bit of Cajun, but also a little bit of that New there's Orleans kind of yat, you know? Yeah, there's a little uh, yat. It's, there's yeah. that good mix. Right. And I, I think you would be more towards the New Orleans side of that, Not definitely not the Cajun side of it, but uh, I don't think you have a very strong... To me, you sound... Uh, and I know it's probably going to sound weird, but to me, you just sound normal. Like, yeah, that's it's, what... It's kind of neutral. Yeah, it's just neutral. Right, yeah, that's right. a good descriptor. Well, I've, I've worked on that. I didn't want to pick up an accent from anywhere. <laughs> I, I don't know good. why, but... Anyway. Yeah. Well, it's interesting when you just said something about State Stanislaus, because I remember from the first podcast, we mm-hmm. did get into that a little bit. Yeah. And I think the reason this is going to be important is that one of the reasons that, that you have so many... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to even put that, but so many people love Colonel Jones is because... You're such a great leader. You're an inspiration to a lot of people. You're a great motivator. There's there's so many adjectives that we can use that lots and this is not just me. This that lots of people in the community and CrossFit would would use towards you. And I'm sure it goes the same with people you've worked with, people in the military that you led. But that always wasn't the case, was it? No, no. And first of all, thank you for that. I, I appreciate that. And that's. I've had this similar conversation with a number of people recently uh, because well, I will get into it, but I have a new job that I'm going to this Friday, but sort of just reminiscing on my time here uh, being at the strategic patrol reserve for about 25 years and all that kind of stuff. It, it just naturally went to that type of conversation, like what's really important in life. And the people that know me now, if they knew me as a child, they would say, there's no way that's not the same guy. And I wasn't. You know, as we talked about the first time, it was a difficult childhood. There was abuse in the family. Ironically, probably about maybe about a dozen years ago, I found out um, how extensive the abuse was. I thought it was just me, and that and that abuse led to my parents getting divorced. Both my parents were alcoholics. So, you know, pick a type, and and that abuse occurred in the household. But as you hear me speak today, I'm, I'm, I'm not a victim of anything. You know, mm-hmm. I, 
I consider myself a champion uh, in life because I look back at those experiences and say, uh, though I wouldn't wish them on anybody, you can look back and say, I'm, I am better, I am stronger for having survived that. And I think that's yeah. the key is surviving. Yeah. When I was a young man growing up in Algiers, it was in the you know, late 60s and early 70s. So what was going on at that time, right? Yeah. A lot of drugs. Yeah. So I had alcoholic. Uh, mom, a uh, great lady, loved her to death. She was a very successful English teacher at Old Perry Walker for about 22 years. Okay. And just a very intelligent lady, very articulate. And her students loved her. I, I run into people all the time, and, and it's still nice to hear them talk about how much they love uh, Claire Jones. But with that is, you know, she didn't have much control. I was in a lot of trouble, did a bunch of drugs, even back in, in sixth grade, six Ds, 22 detentions, punched my female teacher in the stomach, was doing everything, every type of drug that was available at that time. So I was on bad, in a bad way, and she really had no control of me. If she would punish me, I'd go to my room, uh, I'd climb out the window, jump off the roof, and whenever I decided to come home, this is like, you know, however old, 15 years old, I would go behind the, uh, the, the bushes downstairs, take the window pane out, unlock the window, put the window pane back in. She would never know. And as a kid, I got, I had free reign. I went where I wanted and stayed as long as I wanted to. So I was, it was, I was on a bad path. And very fortunately, my grandfather owned a construction company, Jordan Construction, really wonderful people. And I, I think the, the benchmark for what right looks like. And, I, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But they set a great example for me that, uh, that they did also for the rest of us kids. There was, there was more stability there. And it's not a knock on my mom. She was a wonderful lady, and she did the best that she could. And, and the alcoholism, as it is with certain people, it, it was a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. It was a way to kind of check out of the net and, and deal with all the, the bad things that she had to deal with, um, you know, with my dad. Who was who was never there and was was not a positive role model, model obviously leading to uh, the abuse and why my parents divorced. So sixth grade, all that stuff that I just said, on um, mm-hmm. it was a lot of trouble. Uh, my grandparents said, "Okay, you have a choice." And this is kind of funny because it was predetermined. You can either go to St. Paul's, and they described that to me, uh, or you can go to this place called St. Stanislaus. So St. Paul's was like the correctional facility. That was the you know, if you're a bad boy, that's where you went. Or oh. you can go to St. Stanislaus, run by the Brothers of the Sacred Heart. And I yep. said, let me see if I go St. Paul's beatings or I can go to church. Yeah, I'll go over there. So that's where I ended up. And it, uh, it, it, it was the starting point for putting me on, getting me back on the right path and seeing, seeing what right looked like. Again, it was run by the Brothers of Sacred Heart. So it was very disciplined, very organized, structured environment. And I had none of that. Plus, I was doing a bunch of uh, drugs that were influencing, you know, uh, my, my mental and, um, and physical health as well. So being at Stanislaus afforded me that opportunity to get in that structure, and I flourished because I was athletic. So that's all I did. And my, in my, all of my free time, played basketball, football, track, and tennis, uh, and, um, you know, those organized sports, and played ping pong and pool at night after we had uh, study hall. And it was there that um, I think it was my – yeah, it was my junior year of, uh, of high school. There's a recruiter from the local um, National Guard unit that showed up. And he showed up in his dress greens. He was dressed right dress, sharp-looking dude. And I said, that's what I want. That's what I want. Because I knew my mom couldn't afford to send me to college, so whatever happened after high school was on me. 
So when I saw that guy, I said, that's my path forward. That's my way to, to get an education. And by the way, I'm in pretty darn good shape. So bring boot camp on. I'm, I'm all down for it. That led me into the military. Very interesting story. Thank you for sharing it, number one. I can't imagine being in that. I can only, you know, I've only heard stories. I, I, I was fortunate I didn't have those types of, of growing up. But there are more and more people that are in that situation. But I think a lot of them don't really come out really smelling like a rose, if you will, on the <laughs> other side. It, it, it's such a, I can, like I said, I can only imagine. It's such a terrible thing to have to deal with especially being a kid. Sure. I mean, you're not supposed to deal with any kind of, kind of that stuff whenever you're a teenager. You should, well, nobody should deal with it, period. But I mean, geez, you know, for you to come out on the other end is, that that takes a lot of strong will and, you know, strong mind power, if you will, in order to get to that next step. So once that is over with, St. Stanislaus is over with and you signed up, then you're off to boot camp and, right. and you just hit the ground running. So how, how does that look? What, what branch did you say? What the, I was in the I joined the Mississippi National Guard. So oh, okay. the, though I was from Louisiana, I joined the Mississippi Guard, knowing that after I graduated, I would have to find a unit in Louisiana. So you went through boot camp, and then how does that how does that look from there? Interesting start to boot camp was I showed up at the airport. I have two duffel bags. I'm a snot nosed seventeen year old kid. Uh-huh. The airport's closing. They make that announcement. I'm thinking, okay, well, it's closing. I'll, I'll wait for my flight. No, it's, it is closing. They're shutting the doors, dude. Like you have to get out. I don't have any money. I got two duffel bags. All I know is I've got to get my flight. So I put my two duffel bags. I lean them on the front door in the Gulfport airport. And I said, when they open this puppy up in the morning, they're going to have to move me. I'm not missing my flight. Mm-hmm. So an interesting start to, to boot camp. Yeah, definitely. Boot camp, uh, finished that up. And uh, after I came back, then I went back home to New Orleans and had to find a unit there. So back when they had the yellow pages, I you started, let, you let the fingers do the yeah, walking, the fingers did the walking. Okay. So I'm flipping through and I look through the, through the, the blue pages for government trying to find a unit. And as luck would have it, or maybe fate, I found this unit and it was a field artillery unit. I didn't know what the hell that meant, but it was close. It was right across the river. So I'll, I'll join that unit. And so I, I ended up joining uh, the, the first of the 141st field artillery, uh, which was a, which a good decision. I needed to to join that unit because I was after a while after, when I came back from boot camp, I was still doing drill back in Mississippi. And uh, one story I didn't tell you last time was, you know, I went through boot camp, did well, it, it it put me on the right path, but I still had some still had some history of doing things that I should not. You know, I was a young man. Um, I remember staying up all night long with uh, with some buddies, uh, drinking beer, didn't go to sleep. Got my little pickle uniform, the ones that were still around after, you know, post-Vietnam. Drove to drill, and part of the way there, I fell asleep behind the wheel. And I woke up because I heard the horn going off. And it was that last turn on Highway 90 before going to to Bay St. Louis. So I was in the ditch going whatever highway speeds I was at the time. I heard the horn going off. I looked up, and I just instinctively grabbed the wheel because I was in the ditch. And there was a, a, a road that crossed over, so I hit that. I went airborne, I flew through both of those signs, and I landed in the ditch on the other side. Fortunately, I survived. Fortunately, my car was still drivable. And I said, oh, shit, now i got to get to drill. I'm oh in boy. trouble, man. So I get to, I get to drill my, my mom's car, which just beat to hell, but it, it, it got me there. And um, so my, my sergeant says, you know, what's the matter, Jones? I said, well, I had an accident on the way here. 
he asked me what, what happened. I said, I, well, I fell asleep. He said, well, why didn't you just sleep on the side of the road? Uh-huh. He didn't know the rest of the story. Yeah, I know, right? That's not good. No. So you get through boot camp and you start, uh, you find this new artillery group. Yep. It was, you said that was in Louisiana? Yeah, so it was in uh, in Chalmette. And okay. I was I was very fortunate. Uh, again, I had two very very positive male role models. Both of them were, both of my section chiefs were Vietnam vets. And again, they taught me what right looked like. They gave me a lot of responsibility. They saw something in me at half a brain. And so they, they taught me how to do a number of things. And it was exciting to me. I just, I thrived in the environment because I wanted, I, I like working with my hands and, and taking responsibility. So they gave me tons of responsibilities as a young soldier and I flourished in an environment, and I was in the field artillery and uh, in fire direction control, and uh, I was working in uh, in a battalion headquarters. After a while, uh, there was a there was a captain who was really pushing me hard to, to consider going to officer candidate school, and I didn't know what OCS was. Uh, you know, I'm, hey, I'm a soldier. I, I do what you tell me to. Time passes. I, I go through the ranks. I, I I get to the rank of staff sergeant, so I'm in charge of a of um, a handful of guys as a fire direction control chief. And he just worked on me enough, and I said, all right, I'll do it. So that's how I went to um, – that's how I switched over to the dark side to become an officer. Right. Went to OCS. Right. Well, I remember a story when I was talking to my buddy uh, Aaron Phillips. He's uh, He was in the Marines, and he knew you, and we were talking about uh, you. And he was like, man, I, I think the biggest thing, and I may be misspeaking a little bit because I don't know the military as well as you guys do, but he was like, yeah, but he's a full bird colonel. And I was like, yeah, I know. We, we call him colonel. He was like, no, no, he's he's like a full bird colonel. Like, he's not a normal colonel. And I was like, I don't understand what you oh, mean. Why is he Abbey normal? <laughs> I, I, don't know. I was like, I don't know what you mean. And you and I kind of talked a little bit about it, but yeah. you basically, I guess for layman's sakes, not a lot of colonels come through in the ranks that you did or the way that you did is that correct yeah there's so there's two ways that you can um well you can direct commissions are a thing of the past um but it's usually the the route that that soldiers take uh, in the army is they go to officer candidate school or they go to rotc i joined officer candidate school because i had some buddies in the unit who went through cs and they said hey this is the route to go and the rotc is um it is a way it's a path it's more academically oriented. Uh, OCS uh, is more akin to boot camp uh, on steroids. They're going to get in your face. They're going to smoke you. I said, That's what I want. That's the type of environment I want to go grow in. Yeah, because he, he was he just had a lot of respect for you, I guess, because he was very familiar with that whole scene. I mean, I had a ton of respect for you. It didn't matter whether you were a colonel or a staff sergeant or just private yeah, private pile. It didn't right, matter right. to me, yeah. but. Yeah, I mean, it, it's still pretty fantastic, too, even going from, we talked a little bit about your teenage years, and that was a, a bit of a shit show, to say the least, and then you end up getting into high school, starting to figure it out, but then you get into the military, and, you know, classic military, if you've seen any any military boot camp on, on TV, you know they all up in your face trying to get you straight, but you found it in yourself to say, you know what, this is exactly what I'm going to be doing, and you just ran with it. You wind up getting up to colonel. Mm-hmm. But how does that, so I'm, I don't know, really know the rank. So you said you were at staff sergeant. Yeah. So that, that's the non-commissioned ranks. And for the soldiers who join the service and go to ROTC, they skip the enlisted ranks. Uh, they're a cadet while they're in school. And then upon uh, graduation from college, then they get their commission. 
Okay, I, I think that's the the story that Aaron was was telling. Right, about. right. So I worked my way up the enlisted side, and again, I just had great mentorship, and I wouldn't have it any other way. And and it's not to say that that my path is better than anybody no, else's, no, because no. that's 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 not what uh, what I think. That that path worked for me, and that's what I needed. Right. I I needed to to work for somebody and understand what it means to follow orders and have that structure over a period of time to, to see what how things work from the ground up. And the, and the ground up is always where the, the meat and real success of organizations comes from, including the military. So I'm glad I followed that path. So so how does that work from going from non-commissioned to commission? Yeah, like, so, so that's through the OCS? Yeah, so there's and, a non-commissioned ranks goes goes from private all the way to command sergeant major. And the commission ranks goes from second lieutenant, first lieutenant, Captain, Major, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel, and then General. Dang, that's so I was one so step way up from, there. The, from the star. Yeah. Wow, that's that's amazing. Yeah. So you had the honor to. I know we've talked a little bit about this too. You had the honor of leading some pretty great men into some pretty interesting uh, stories. Yeah, I was. Uh, so I grew up in the in the field artillery. First, of the one forty first field artillery, which um, I'd be remiss if I didn't say is the oldest field artillery unit outside of the original thirteen colonies. No kidding. So let th- let that soak in a little wow, bit. That's pretty uh, cool. They were um, established in eighteen thirty eight, and if you if you look in the history books, there is an, um, a a major battle that uh, the Washington artillery was not involved in. So I'm just incredibly humbled. And, and proud to have grown up in that unit, literally and figuratively, and, and rank, age, maturity, uh, pick a category. Uh, it helped mold me into the people, into the person that I am today. And and I, I say that molded into, based on my soldiers, uh, it, I learned as much from them as I did in my leadership responsibilities throughout the different uh, positions that I held in the, in the unit. So what exactly is it that you guys did? Like, what, what did your unit do? We were a mechanized field artillery unit, which means that we, we can, uh, we're on tracked vehicles and, and can get to the battlefield. So in, in the Cold War, when you look at uh, uh, the field artillery, so uh, we're well behind the, the infantry and cavalry and all those guys up front. So we provide indirect fire. So um, the infantry and cav, uh, spec ops, all those guys, um, they're in direct, direct contact and generally a line of sight with the enemy. So we're further removed. So we're behind them and we provide direct support to them. So basically what you mean is like that direct fire is like, I literally have a gun in my hand and I, and I can see the enemy and I can actually shoot at the enemy. Right. Versus, versus us is with a 155 self-propel round. It weighs uh, about 100 pounds. So it's about 100 pounds of steel going 13 miles downrange. So you guys were highly counted on for the guys that were getting shot at literally in the direct combat? Well, no, not in, not when we went to Iraq, though. And that's the, that's the interesting part because I spent the majority of my career preparing for that type of fight. However, um, OIF-3 was not that fight. It was, a, it, was a, it was a three-dimensional fight. So all of our training was, on, was in field artillery, which is a highly technical field. But this wasn't a field artillery fight. It was off-putting to many of the soldiers because one, they'd never been never been on foreign soil before. They'd never been to combat. They didn't know what it looked like. I mean, everybody opines what they what they think it is based on whatever their source of media or movies and all that kind of nonsense. And I hadn't been either, so I, I wasn't sure. 
what helped me get a an accurate picture of what we were going to experience was this thing called a, a PDSS, a pre-deployment site survey. What it is is the the units that that is going downrange links up with the unit that's in theater at the time. So I linked up with a 38 uh, field artillery from um, from Fort Hood, and this was a field artillery unit that was was operating in Baghdad for a long period of time. From our understanding, my unit was going to replace his in in Baghdad. It had nothing to do with field artillery. It was all it was all infantry operations. It was all of their missions were were outside the forward operating base, which was uh, uh, Camp Liberty and. Um, the other one just evades me. It'll come to uh, Camp Liberty and shoot. I'll get there. But anyway, it, how, it's, it's going to come into your head yeah, yeah, about somewhere. ten minutes. You know, maybe, maybe I need to have some more of that uh, of the Jameson. Yeah, I know. Um, uh, but it uh, it was a forward operating base that uh, the house forty thousand coalition forces. But the majority of his uh, his unit's effort was outside of that forward operating base. I thought that's what our unit was going to do. So I went once we got back to the United States. So I, when we were in theater, I drove around with him uh, in his leadership. We drove around to see all the d- different areas, their area of operation, uh, the AOR. That's what I was expecting we were going to do. The brigade commander had a different perspective. He wanted his infantry battalions to have that outside battle space. So though I briefed him when we came back to uh, Fort Hood, uh, while we were still in our in our training status, he said, "No, that's not going to happen." So I wasn't sure what we were going to do once we got to um, to Baghdad and Victory Camp Victory. Okay, I, I told you it was going to come to you. It's coming yeah, yeah. later down the road, right? So when we got there, it was uh, it was it was culture shock, man, because we didn't we were like a, a boat without a rudder. So here we are. We've been we've done all of our pre combat training pre-deployment training at, at Fort Hood. Then we went to the National Training Center in the Mojave Desert and, and trained uh, dealing with, with the role players uh, from Titan uh, to replicate what we might see once we got to Iraq. And the interesting thing is at the end of the day, when we finished our training in the, in the desert there in California, I would go back and sit down with, with the role players and say, okay, look, hats off now. We're not in role play. Tell me what I need to do to keep my soldiers alive in combat. And that's where I, re- I made some good friends who I stay in contact with today. They gave me the lowdown and said, this is what you need to pay attention to. And they gave me um, names and phone numbers of some of their family members in Baghdad and said, if you ever find yourself in trouble, call them and, and they'll help you. Also, oh, the role players, those they, were not American soldiers. No, those so were these were Iraqi citizens oh, okay. who came back to the United States, okay, but uh, gotcha. were dedicated to trying to help the United States. I don't know, how do you how do you say it? Help the the local nationals get control of their own country. That's that's a whole nother discussion unto itself. I think it was well intended, yeah. but um, yeah, and that was an interesting com- 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 I can't even talk right conversation that I had a buddy of mine. Uh, Tim Hooper. I'm not sure if you know Tim Hooper, yes. but uh, you know Tim. Yeah, he's a helicopter pilot. Yeah, he, he was in the one for one. Okay, all right. Yeah, so you know Tim. Very good, good. guy. Yeah, had him on the podcast. Him and I are good friends. I, I coach his daughter in, in soccer. That's how we've met. Yeah, uh, but I had him on the podcast and we talked a little bit about military stuff. And one of the questions I asked him was, "You're you're you're battling every day, and this war is happening all over the place." But they would have conversations with the uh, the residents there, like how does that even work? Like it just, it blows my mind. And he was like, dude, these people just want to wake up and go to work. 
They don't want a war to be going on in the street, but it just so happens that there's a freaking war going on. Yeah. You know, I, I understand that kind of made me put into perspective that while I know you're not trying to get across that these guys are being traitors to their country that are helping y'all, uh, but they're trying to, from what I gather, is they're trying to help their country, their fellow countrymen yeah. fight off these couillons, if you will, that are trying <laughs> to wreak havoc everywhere, which is who we were actually at war with. Absolutely. It's so surreal. It, it, as you were saying that, the, um, I had a picture that, that entered my mind while I was on uh, on a patrol. So we're, I'm in all my combat gear. I've got, I have all of them, all of my equipment in front of me, this thing called Blue Force Tracker, which is a computer that lets me know everybody is um, in the area of operations. I mean, you're just you're just stuffed in there. There's so much stuff. Plus, you got all your ammunition all around you, and you're in this heavy vehicle. Glass is about six inches thick. You're probably going to to fob justice, uh, and that's another story. One of my responsibilities was training an Iraqi a lieutenant colonel how to do base defense. So we were en route to his forward operating base, and I remember looking out the windows. We were en route. I'm in this up armored vehicle with all these guys loaded to bear. As we're cruising through the neighborhoods, I see them walk around with their traditional garb, the, the man dress. As I looked at them, and I made eye contact with a number of them, and I thought, what are they thinking? Like, what are you here to do, man? It wasn't until I had some good conversations with the local nationals that I really got that perspective. Is hey, imagine yourself now here in, in your house, and foreigners coming down your street with armor, up-armored vehicles Sometimes they're pointing your weapons at you, and all you know is that there's carnage all around you. So your life is in, in danger as a result of them being here because the bad guys want to engage them. All you want to do, you know, to what, uh, what Tim Hooper said was they're just trying to wake up and put food on the table. Yeah, I can't imagine. One of my interpreters, uh, we'll call him Stuart, he is in Iraq now, and he's a nomad. Every single day he wakes up and wonders whether he's going to make it to the end of the day. He goes weeks on end without seeing his family. So he has a wife and he has three kids. He has to take different taxis. So he still works for the, uh, he still works for the government. I don't know which particular base he's working at. Uh, he was, uh, Taja was one of them. He, he was our interpreter for a while and love him to death. But he's a nomad now. He doesn't get to see his family on a regular basis because if he stays with them, their lives are in danger. They've blown up his car. You know, just like you see in the movies, they put a knife with a, with a note in the doorframe of his house and say, we're going to kill you if you continue to work for the infidels. I would trust that guy more so than people I grew up with in the United States. He put his life on the line every damn day for us. Just him showing up was a feat unto itself because he would have to take multiple taxis, have to take multiple routes just to get to uh, to the FOB. And then when he showed up, very positive attitude, very humble person, and just a guy trying to take care of his family, trying to be a good husband, a good father to his kids. How many people can say that in the United States? Mm-hmm. You know, how many people today with the culture of going on and cancel culture and everybody's a victim on all that nonsense, I don't want to get into politics. When I compare people who espouse what they think are the, the troubles in their life, and I compare them to Stuart, Dafir, there's no comparison. There is none. People don't have problems here when I compare them to what those folks deal with. It's just a mindset, and 
you know, part of what we talked about is the mindset that I carry with me now. I've worked on it my entire life, and it's based on relationships with people like Stuart and the guys with whom I served and very proud and learned a tremendous amount from, and they helped groom me. They helped make me a better person. Had I not interacted with them and all the people that have come into my life, I wouldn't be at the place where I am now. Very interesting story. So Stuart, I mean, was his driving factor for all this because of the kind of what we talked about and how you know, he's just wanting to go to work. You know, he didn't want, he just so, wants his family to, he, did, he wants the crazy people just, out of there. He's just trying to take care of his family. Yes. That's it. And, and the American government pays him very well. I've tried to get him back into the United States and, and, you know, maybe there's a, a better opportunity for it now, but there, there probably in two weeks that goes by, then he and I aren't talking. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. That's awesome. Good for you. Through some other conversations that we've had, you've, You've got, you were involved in some pretty high profile type of um, missions or assignments, yeah. if you will. Yeah. So, you know, part of our, our discussions, you know, particularly for you as a civilian, uh, asking me, a guy who's, who spent time downrange, you know, it's, it's important for me to say there are different levels of experience within the military. There are different ranks and different perspectives. There are some who, just because they were in theater, like to say that they were, they did more and, and experienced things that people who hadn't been there wouldn't know otherwise. And, and before you go on, you've used that term a few times in theater. Uh, I'm assuming what it means, but can you explain that to me, what you're meaning by yeah, theater? Yeah, so it's it, in theater, downrange. It basically just means on, on foreign soil. That's kind of what I figured, and, and, but I just wanted so to in Iraq, clarify. Yeah, yeah. So we had some really interesting missions. So, again, we went over there as a field artillery battalion thinking through all of our training that we were going to do field artillery stuff. None of it. Um, but I, I will say that the caveat to that is there was one time where, so I brought, uh, I brought two guns with me to Mamadia, and we provided live fire uh, support for Marines who were in, com, uh, in contact. So I'm very proud of it. That was the extent of the field artillery mission. So we had about 19 different uh, concurrent missions going on at the same time. So we had about 75% of base defense for the VBC and, and, and Camp Liberty, tons of units. It, it was a small city. When you're talking about 40,000 coalition forces, man, that's a small city. So we had about 75% of base defense. So it's us, soldiers in a, in a steel tower, 12 hours a day, and right on the other side is outside the forward operating base. But you know what's interesting is that that wall was nothing more than cinder block. So you could walk up and kick a hole in the thing uh-huh. pretty much. Uh, it reminds me of one time there were some local national uh, knuckleheads. That, I don't know if they were terrorists or whatever. So they challenged one of the guys, uh, some of the soldiers in a tower. They drove up to the tower. They had AK-47s, and they just lit up the tower. Well, my soldiers, they're in a, they're in a steel tower. They just ducked down, wait for the fire to stop, and then just lit them up. Mm-hmm. Never happened again. Yeah, I bet. But again, it's just a cinder block wall. Uh, but it was those soldiers who were in the, that tower, that was the level of protection. So that was one thing. We had outside on the wall. We had in, interior perimeter patrols. We had entry control point, which is basically what it sounds like. It is It is the entrance and exit to the forward operating base. Uh, I had a unit assigned to me from Wisconsin. Outstanding guys and really smart fellas. And they literally changed the physical configuration of that of that entry control point every single day. And it faced the uh, Baghdad University. So you have all of these students coming out every single day 
and they're facing our entry control point where we have just a ton of vehicles, military and, and local nationals who are coming on the Ford operating boost, uh, base to do work on a regular basis. So they would come up with their cameras. Well, these guys figured out there's no reason for you to be taking pictures. What are you taking pictures of? You see it. What do you? So right. we knew what was going on. Yep. So we'd send, they would send a quick reaction force across the street and confiscate their cameras and say, don't do it anymore. But one of the ways that they helped protect that entry control point, it was the largest one and the most successful one in Iraq. Not according to me, according to the to Corps, uh, who evaluated us and uh, and some other things we did. We didn't have any any soldiers who were killed there. It was about 600 meters long. It was divided up into two sections. Anyway, it was just a real successful operation. Now, you know, getting to your point because you were asking about well, what's what's that special mission. Well, uh, and, you told me and just full disclaimer, we had a conversation before this and you yourself volunteered that, hey, look, anything's on the table, whatever we want to talk about, because I didn't want to. Um, I've got a lot of respect for you and for military personnel, and I'm not just going to come out and say, hey, tell me about this story right. or if you ever blew somebody's head off. Or, I'm not going to do that. But you were willing to have a conversation, and I'm willing to talk about whatever you're willing to yeah. talk about. So I appreciate you opening up. And again, the table is yours. But I just <laughs> wanted to throw out that little disclaimer before. Right. You know. Well, no, thank you for that. And it's as with all things, it's important that we that we talk to people and open up. And there's so many people who have not been in the military and don't know what it's like. I enjoy talking about my experience because it was one of the best experiences of my life. I think that, I don't think, I know that we made a difference there for those local nationals. I have a personal relationship with the interpreter who, who helped influence my perspective on the local nationals there. I was ignorant about the Iraqi people and their intent, and he helped educate me. I'm a better person for that, and I can speak about it knowledgeably, more so than the average bear. So I was really proud of that, uh, that unit and what they did there. Because they provide a level of force protection that we that wouldn't have existed. I think some of the statistics were they inspected over fifty thousand vehicles without a single incident and inspected over one hundred thousand people. No one was killed. Wow, that's incredible. So that was one of the missions, and that whole unit was assigned. That was about one hundred and twenty soldiers. That was their full time job, the entire year that we were in Baghdad, just doing that. And a lot of smart guys that they had some engineers, some um, guys at welders and construction. So they would they would use the machinery that we had there to move the barriers we had. We had different types of barriers, Alaskan and Jersey and all. And so they just reconfigured it. So if the bad guys were surveilling that entry control point, because they had all the, the time and opportunity to do that. And when the day came and that time came for them to try to attack it their plan was going to hell because it didn't look the same because maybe a barrier is here and it wasn't there before when they planned that. So good on them for doing that. We ran a brigade interrogation facility. It was like a prison. So everybody remembers Abu Ghraib, right? Bad stuff. Uh, soldiers who made bad decisions. Um, but as I always say, there, there's not a bad organization or a bad unit. There's bad leadership and leadership allowed those things to happen. You know, the soldiers need to be held accountable for it. But anyway, so we, we ran a brigade interrogation facility. The purpose and goal of that brigade interrogation facility was to pull knuckleheads off the street during patrols. It could be just common criminals, burglars, rapists, murderers, terrorists. Uh, we brought them in, and we would use the, uh, the intel guys to debrief them to figure out 
okay, what are you doing? Why are you here? Give me some intelligence so I can figure out where the bad guys are, where they are, what are their networks, et cetera, et cetera. We detain them there. We call them detainees. Again, it could be anywhere from a common criminal up to a terrorist. We would send the bad guys to Abu Ghraib. So that was our tie with, uh, with Abu Ghraib. I'm proud to say that in the year that we operated that uh, interrogation facility, we had zero incidents, number one. And secondly, we were rated as the top interrogation facility in all of Iraq at that time based on, uh, on CORE's evaluation. We did a good job there. I'm proud of the soldiers for that. We also protected the uh, spec ops in a place called uh, Rodwania, which was a palace on the, on the other end of the Ford operating base. So uh, SF guys could just focus on when they came in in the FOB, we got you, man. Do all your planning. Chill. Take it easy. You don't have to worry about protecting yourselves. We got that. So we, we protected uh, that palace uh, so that those guys could uh, just do their thing in there. So, again, I, I had a number of different units. It's, I'm proud to say, you know, we went over there as a field artillery battalion, not having done infantry operations. But everything we did was, was infantry to a great extent, military, police. So I had 19 different types of companies, different types of unit, engineer, armor, Signal, communications, infantry, you name it. So I had 19 different companies assigned to me from all over the United States. And one of the units was assigned to provide the outer perimeter for a place called Camp Cropper, which is close to Baghdad International Airport, which is commonly known as BIOP. I was the airport uh, in, in Baghdad. Uh, so we protected the, the outer perimeter of, again, 75% of that, which included the, the, the center part of where our BIOP was. There was also a little, a small airport where the VVIPs would come in. So senators, high-ranking individuals, I had a unit that was assigned that protected them. Another cool thing was that we had a unit that protected the outer perimeter for Camp Cropper. And there was, I forgot the name of the other location, but it was where Saddam Hussein was maintained. So they would play the turtle game. He would stay at Camp Cropper for some period of time, and then they would move him to this other location. I, I can picture it in my mind. I just don't remember the name of it. Anyway, just a, a cool story to say. Yeah, very interesting, because I know everybody, they might not know a lot of the names that you just mentioned, but I'm sure that everybody knows Saddam Hussein. That's that's a pretty big person in, in history. I'm listening to it, and I'm understanding everything you're saying, but it's hard for me to wrap my head around a lot of those things just because I'm just a dummy. I'll watch some military stuff on TV, or I'll you know listen to some military podcasts. And it, it's, it just, it, it, it's amazing. It's cool. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I was there, and I did it, and, and it's... It's hard for me to, to, to a certain extent, to kind of focus on articulately explaining that stuff because, as I'm telling you, the mental picture of those places come to mind. I can see myself in the Humvee on my way to Camp Cropper to the place where Saddam was. And so the deck of cards were, were also maintained there. So they were shuffled around as, as well, but not as much as, as Saddam was. What a, a fantastic story. Just uh, it's, like I said, it just kind of blows my mind. It's kind of crazy. But you know, even after all of this and when you come back, you finally get back to the States. Another thing I kind of wanted to talk about is you had a big part in a lot of the stuff that happened with Katrina. When Katrina happened, we were still we were still in Iraq. We had just completed our mission. So my unit is located in Chalmette. So the majority of my soldiers are, are from that area. But you remember from Katrina that that area was wiped out. The hurricane had already hit. Now was the flooding. And that's where the real damage was. About 80% of my soldiers lost everything they owned. And one of the, the most profound statements I heard that it still moves me today, and it says volumes about the character, and I don't remember the soldier's name, but I just remember we were in, um, in our big conference room, and the, and the TV was on, and Fox News was playing, 
and they were showing the coverage. And they showed a house whose rooftop was barely above the water. And I remember the soldier in the back of the room saying, wow, man, you see that? That's my house. I guess I got some work to do when I get home. Jeez, so think about this. We went through pre-deployment training for six months, and then we were in Iraq, in Baghdad, Iraq, for a full year. So at the end of that tour, and you consider the separation for a lot of soldiers, and a lot of them really young, never been away from Louisiana, never been away from, the, from their wives and their family, and all that's entailed in the psychological and emotional drain of that in addition to waking up every single day and for those who went outside the wire and, and were in harm's way and didn't know if they were going to make it back, it's even more challenging and grinding for them. But for this guy to say, to say so nonchalantly as he did, well, I guess I've got some work to do when I get back. I was blown away by the comment and the maturity of this guy, like, okay, no big deal. It just put into perspective how mature this guy was and he represented the majority of the units. Like, okay, Roger that. We've been through this shit. Wait till I get back home. I'll take care of it. It is an interesting perspective. I remember watching a lot of that stuff, and my heart was just broken. We were fortunate to be enough outskirts of it where we had very minor damage, not a big deal. Watching the news and, like, literally crying on the sofa, yeah. uh, just upset for those families because there were so many involved. But, yes, ultimately, it's a house. While some people lost right. lost all their stuff right. and you can rebuild, of course, there were a lot of lives that were lost. But for this guy to say, to have the... What a, the, what a great perspective, though. Exactly. In our final formation, and we didn't do much of those, obviously, because you gather a bunch of soldiers in one place, nah, bad things can happen, right? Incoming. Missiles, mortars, rockets, all that good stuff. But in the final formation, I said, I remember telling the soldiers, and it relates to the perspective that soldier articulated that day is... You have no choice but when you return to the United States to be a better man, a better husband, a better brother, a better person overall because you survived. Don't take that lightly. And what that young man said reflected that perspective. So we get back to get back to the United States. The day we rolled in, we did a tactical road march from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad, which means that we were in our military vehicles and we did a convoy from Kuwait all the way to Baghdad and received, you know, small arms fire and all that stuff en route. When we got into Baghdad, uh, there were mortar rounds that were landing. The day we left, we were on a C-130. They do a corkscrew in and a corkscrew out. With the corkscrew is the specific uh, flight pattern that the pilots take to avoid getting uh, struck by ground-to-air missiles, surface-to-air missiles. I was talking with my ex good buddy of mine, Brian Champagne, great guy, who inevitably took the battalion back in 2011. Uh, so we're in the C-130, we're just shooting the shit and saying, hey, man, we're going home. We're going home. Can't wait. As we're doing the corkscrew flying out, we see flashes on the outside of the C-130, and we just start cracking up laughing like, really? There was incoming when we left, and now they're shooting at us when we're trying to fly away? What the shit? Yeah. We get back to Louisiana, then there's the damage uh, and devastation caused by Hurricane Katrina. We got to Fort Polk, so we started decompressing. And, I'm, and the good thing is that Big Army did a phenomenal job. They knew that our soldiers didn't have homes to go to. They didn't have any possessions. I mean, most of the most of the soldiers' family members were lucky to get out with whatever they can fit in their car and get away. So Big Army kept all those guys on order so they can continue to get paid because there's no income. 
There's no house. Mama got away with the kids. And now what, right? What do you come back to? There is nothing there. So I gave him some time off. And the first thing the soldiers wanted to do is go get a car. It was something that they owned, something that they, that they earned. We go through all the, the out processing. And then I get back to, um, to Luling. A lot of my soldiers decided to stay on orders because they decided to, because they needed to. They needed to pay their bills. And again, the Army provided them that opportunity, which was really cool. I'm, I'm very thankful to, to the Army for doing that. I didn't have to do that. I didn't lose anything. I was very fortunate. I lost some shingles. It's almost embarrassing to say, but I had no damage. But because my soldiers were serving, I was going to serve as well. My plan was to take like a couple of weeks off, just kind of decompress, spend some time with mom and the kids. And then I was going to go back on duty because my soldiers were. And I got a call from Chief Parham. And uh, so Chief worked for the brigade commander, General Basilica. And he said, Colonel Jones, General Basilica, I need you to come up here and, and, and work the hurricane. I said, well, I have to chuckle as I say that. Does the general know that I'm on leave? Okay, so I'm, I'm a light colonel, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass a message to the general saying, excuse me, mm-hmm. no, I'm, going, I'm not going back on duty. I'm on leave, dude. Not. Yeah. Chief Parham says, well, General Basilica wants you here first thing Monday morning. I think it was like a, a Saturday at staff call. Roger that. That's where the general wants. I'll be there. Throw all my uniforms in a, in a, in a footlock or something. I load up my vehicle. Monday morning, I'm going to, to Carville. So there were probably about 20 brigades. Brigade size unit is, uh, can be about 3,500, generally speaking, 3,000, 3,500 soldiers from all over the United States and uh, four different territories. So you have a room full of brigade commanders. So these brigade commanders are generally uh, full board colonels. It's a staff call. They came from all over the place to help Louisiana, right? Some of them, without specific orders, were here to help, which is an issue unto itself. But here they are briefing the general. General Basilica sees me, and he, he, he looks at me and goes, Jordy, I don't, know, I don't know why he called me Jordy, but he said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, sir, I'll, I'll talk to you after the meeting. He said, well, what are you doing here? I said, well, Chief Parham said that I better get my ass up here, that, that uh, you want me to be the G3 for, uh, for Task Force Pelican. G3 relates to uh, division-level operations, which it, a division is about 10,000 soldiers. So it's that level of commitment of soldiers and airmen for this operation we call it purple. So it's uh, the green of the Army and the, and, the, and the blue of the Air Force, right? So it's a purple operation. He said, no, what the message was, should have been, call Colonel Jones, ask him if he's interested and available because I would like him to be the G3. Too late. I'm already here. I said, so look, General, the the message got a bit screwed up, but I've already talked to my family. Look, I'm I'm here. I'm committed. So that was a good mission because I was ultimately responsible for determining where the 20,000 soldiers that came from all over the the United States and four different territories, where they were going to be deployed in Louisiana. So that was my main responsibility. Uh, which is very cool. And then, so I, I did that. And then uh, for the GP oil spill, uh, the BP oil spill uh, was the National Guard's liaison with the, uh, with the Coast Guard uh, for the first part of that. So I remember sitting down with, the, with uh, General Landrino and the, and the Admiral from the Coast Guard as they were making their initial discussions about how the National Guard, so there's Am- uh, Army and Air National Guard that makes up the National Guard in, in each state, how Louisiana National Guard was going to assist the Coast Guard in responding to the BPO spill. 
So I was there for those initial discussions. Then I was the commander for the 61st Troop Command. So we provided the, the headquarters for Task Force Pelican, which a task force is a number of different types of units that come together for a specific mission and for a certain period of time, Hurricane Katrina. And in this instance, also for, uh, for the BP oil spill. Fortunately, the guys from my unit showed up. And because directly after that meeting, they said, we're going to, to the CP, which is in Homa. Well, we're on the North Shore at, uh, at their shell plant. Uh, how am I getting there? Well, we're going on to Blackhawk while well, I drove my vehicle. Fortunately, my guys are there. So as we're leaving the meeting, you know, I'm with a, with a two-star general and an admiral for the Coast Guard. Hey, we're going to, to the, the command post. Um, I just throw the keys to one of the guys in my unit and said, hey, man, drive my vehicle. I'll see you when we get over there. So we jumped on a Blackhawk and flew to, flew to Homa to see the operation and, uh, and talk about how the National Guard was going to help the Coast Guard. A couple of things that really kind of struck me was the fact that, you know, you're not talking about leading a couple of men. You, you talked about 10,000, 20,000. 20,000 from all over the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people, Colonel. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to say that. And, you know, I wasn't leading those guys. Uh, I had a team of, of soldiers and leaders who did the preponderance of the work. I was ultimately responsible. I get to claim, hey, that's what I did. Right. I get it. So you're not, are you retired from the military now? Yes. I retired in 2011. I wanted to spend more time in the service Uh, because I spent all those years enlisted. uh, My mandatory removal date, my MRD uh, was about seven years beyond that. So I had a little bit shy of, of 32 years and I really wanted to stay in longer. But the reality was that I was a, a full bird colonel. I had my brigade level command there are only so many general officer slots in the state, and I was holding up a, an 06 slot, a, a full bar colonel slot, uh, for some younger guy coming up, and there are probably a few guys ahead of me uh, for consideration for general. So, you know, from their perspective, it was time for me to go. I was holding up that slot. I wasn't going to get – they weren't going to send me off to the war college. They weren't going to promote me to general. So, you know, that's where retirement came from. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for you. And then yeah, before we thank you. before we go further, I, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for sharing those stories. It's, it's pretty fantastic. But it, it's funny because I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, but this is going to make a lot of sense because our relationship has been CrossFit. And that's, that's kind of the basis of what we do. And a lot of people know that CrossFit can be a little tough. We do a lot of crazy things, flipping tires, carrying this, carrying the other. You know, through your experiences in the military, you've developed quite a tough mindset. You're just a tough all around kind of guy. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about some of the things that, that I know about you is that you're, you're basically known for, uh, for a lack of better term, the crazy one in the box, because you are just willing to do anything and everything, no matter what it is. And for instance, you know, when we do Murph every year, everybody knows about Murph. We do it on Memorial day, a one mile run. Then it's a hundred pull-ups, 200 push-ups. 300 air squats, followed by a second one-mile run. And typically, we would wear a 20-pound vest when we do it. But not you. <laughs> you you do it a little bit different. While we we get a kick out of it, we're like, oh, my God, look, here goes Colonel again. He old crazy ass. He got this, that, and the other. But it was always fun for us because we knew exactly where this was coming from. You weren't doing it to get a rise out of anybody. You weren't doing it because... Um, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to wear the most weight and I'm going to make this the hardest I can. You had a very special reason for doing what you did. 
So just kind of talk about that for a second, because you would wear your combat boots. Right. You'd wear all your full, do you call them fatigues? Like your, um, well, that's what they used to be. So it's, um, so as time passes, the, the, the name for the uniform changes. So I, I wore my, my DCU. So it was desert camouflage uniform. So it was the same uniform that I wore in Iraq. Uh, I still have all my body armor. Don't tell anybody. Okay. Secret uh, safe for me. Uh, secret. All right. Uh, so I wear that uh, body armor. I wear my, uh, my combat boots. And um, for the mile run, uh, I run with a 30-pound bag. Like a, uh, like a little sandbag kind of yeah, on, on your my shoulders. shoulders yeah. yeah. Look, I, I know that it, it draws attention, but that that's not my thing, man. I, right. I, I know. I, I get it. I, I know it draws attention. But my intent is falls in line with the two reasons why I think God puts us on earth. One, we're here to, to attempt to follow the example that he set. He paid, talking about the ultimate sacrifice, he paid it. He spent his time with sinners. He didn't, he didn't stay with the, the bourgeoisie. He hung around with the sinners and set the example for them. I think our job is to try to follow his example to the extent that we are humanly capable of doing that. Part A. Part B is it is our responsibility to serve others. If my goal is to try to follow his example, and I fall short all the time because I'm fallible, I'm a human, I get that, but that's part of the journey. But in order to, to have a chance of being successful in doing that, then I've got to work my ass off to make sure that my temple is in order. I mean, we are a temple of God, so I've got to be in the best physical and mental and spiritual shape that I possibly can. I call it like my iron triangle. So it's, it, it's a very strong geometric figure. So if any one of the angles falls, then the whole thing falls apart, mind, body, and spirit. I'm weak. I'm fallible. I have all kinds of issues, uh, physically and otherwise, but I work on them every day because I think that's part of, again, that's, that's our quest. If I'm going to try to set the example and help others, I've got to do my best to make sure I'm in a position to do that. And I also, like, from the, from the CrossFit perspective, I know they look at me and say, man, look at this old bastard. <laughs> this guy's hanging with us, and sometimes he can, he can beat us. Maybe not as much for lifting weights, but the grinders uh, and the aerobic stuff and the combination thereof, lifting heavy weights, going for a run, man, I'm in for the long grind. Because, again, I played four sports in high school. I've run yep. marathons, triathlons, go ruck. Spartan, all that kind of stuff. And I love it because I found that, particularly in Iraq, was the real testing ground, that my threshold for, for handling stress and pressure was greater than the average bear because I was in very good physical shape, mind, body, and spirit. I would work out an hour and a half every day. I worked 18 hours a day the entire time that I was in Baghdad. I would take an hour and a half every day to go lift weights. And I'd bring the radio with me, but I would tell my guys, don't mess with me unless there's something serious going down. So consider what serious might be in that environment. Right. Don't mess with me. That is my time. That is my solace. So I went in there and I pumped iron and I lifted heavy. So though I'm, a, I'm not a big person, I have a small frame, but I'm strong and I like to lift heavy. I've got, you know, as you know, I've got frozen shoulders, so I can't do a bunch of stuff overhead. Who cares? Yeah. Um, but it was, that was my solace. And it was my coping mechanism. And I found that throughout my life, even now, and you know, I'm, I'm 59, it's a comfortable area for me. I, I think our growth should be in the uncomfortable zone. 
Yeah. That's where, that's where it comes from. Right. And that's one of the things we preach out there too. And you uh, live like to the T uh, we always talk about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if there was anybody that exemplifies that little statement, it's definitely you. Uh, and, <laughs> I mean, and we try to do that too, because, you know, it will, you know, if you're, if you're in your comfort zone, there's no growth there. You have to get out of that comfort zone in order to grow. And if you have aspirations to want to get better, get more fit, get stronger, you've got to get out of that comfort zone and you've got to get a little uncomfortable. And, and it's, it's, it's hard, you know, cause a lot of times it could be really mentally challenging and I'm just talking about working out. I'm not talking about people trying to shoot and kill me and blow my head off like in the military. And to me, that's one of the things that I love about CrossFit and these hero workouts. Yeah. My hero workout, for those that don't know, there are a lot of repeatable benchmark type workouts. Murph is probably the most famous CrossFit hero workout because he paid the ultimate sacrifice. And this workout is dedicated to him. We do it every single year. We always have a little talk always before at the box about Murph and about what it truly means. And the thing that I like to tell people is, look, it's going to suck. It's going to be hard. Everybody knows that. So just put that to the side because guess what? It sucks for everybody. The person next to you, the person next to you, the one that's on the other side of the box, your hands are going to hurt. Your legs are going to get a little crampy. Your feet are going to hurt whenever you got to go run the second mile, especially if you're wearing a vest and you're doing it RX. But what you need to keep in mind is that what this workout is about this workout is not about you today. I don't really mean to offend you, but it's not about you today. It is about the sacrifices, the ultimate sacrifices that are being paid. It's about the bigger picture, right. the things that they've done in order for you to have the freedom to come in here and do this crazy workout that we're doing today. And you really embody that by going out and doing what you're doing and you're making it hard and you're working on your will. But it pales in comparison to what some of these guys are doing exactly. across the pond. Yeah, that's why that's why I kind of define the different levels. And look, I, I I didn't have to fire my weapon when I was in in Iraq the entire time. There there are levels of experience that people have. I wasn't one of those guys who was in harm's way in comparison to my soldiers who were going outside the wire every single day on combat patrols. Their lives were in, in danger on a regular basis. They engaged with the enemy on a regular basis. I did not experience that, and, and I make that very clear. The hero wads are an opportunity. Look, it, it's it's us working out amongst themselves. It's, you know, we don't have cameras on us. The media's not there. It's just us. So who gives a shit except for us who are there? But why we give a shit and why it's important is it relates back to those things I said before about why I theory according to Jordan is to why we're on earth is to try to follow uh, God's example. And the way we do that is self-improvement every single day. So your growth comes from getting outside your comfort zone that briefs well. But when you feel that physical pain, when you feel that stress, when you're tired, when your lungs are burning, everything hurts like hell for the average Joe who's not used to doing this. Spent my lifetime training. This is familiar territory. You know, one of the little patches on my bag says embrace the suck. Yep. It's Throw me in that briar patch. I love that because I'm, I've experienced that enough to know that by living in that area physically and psychologically, I'm going to continue to grow. So I'm always looking for the next ceiling. That's one of the things that's so enticing with, with CrossFit. There's so much psychology associated with it. It is a great opportunity to, from my life experiences, what I think are ways to, to motivate people to help them understand that there, you can do more than you think you can. One of the members, uh, Sam Tucker, 
I remember she was, uh, she was coming in on a run and I could tell she was hurting. And I just started yelling at her, giving a positive reinforcement. Move your butt, Sam. You can do better than that. Come on, pump your arms. And, and her hearing my voice resonated with her. She picked up her, her pace. She started pumping her arms. And you could tell that she just finished that much faster. As a result of that, and I went to her afterwards and I said, you see, there's a lot more in your tank than what you know. You have to push yourself, but you have to believe that it's there. Commensurately, you need somebody, whoever that is, to bring this to your attention and say, you can do this. But it's, it's more than just words. One of my favorite mantras is, wherever you go, preach leadership, and when necessary, use words. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, it's, yep. it's, it's great to talk about this, but when you start feeling that, that pain in, in, in your, in your yep. muscles and that lactic acid builds up, it's like, oh, shit. Like some people who don't work out much, they're couch potatoes. And when they start to exercise, they go, shit, this hurts, man. Why am I doing it? This is why I shouldn't do this. That's, a, right. that's your justification. Right. Commensurately for folks like you and I who are used to staying in a high level of shape, when we don't do something for a number of days, our body starts to ache because it says, dude, you need to do something. So we try to impart that mindset and experience to those who don't have those type of experiences as a way to entice them to improve themselves. And that's what our right. job is. Well, and I think uh, in Sam's case, I, I see that a lot is that a lot of people, like you said a minute ago, one of your uh, tags was embrace the suck. A lot of people don't understand that portion or they haven't got to that level yet. And especially when you're on a run and you're out there by yourself and your legs hurt, your feet hurt, you're really tired. You just kind of want it to be over and you can get a lot of evil voices in your head and you can come up with 10,000 reasons why it's okay for you to stop. Even if you've got like five more minutes of work left, it's very easy to convince yourself to go ahead and stop. It's okay. I'll just get back at it tomorrow. Who cares? Nobody sees me anyway, right? right? But you come in or I come in and we start saying, hey, you're almost there. Hey, you're going to make it. You're doing great. Pump those arms. And what you're doing is distracting her from those evil convincing voices in her head to all of a sudden now it's like, well, wait a minute. Maybe he's right. Well, I don't want to let Colonel down. And in turn, she's not letting herself down. Right. And then she picks up the pace. We That's see that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. And different people. Very cool. Different people react to different things different ways, so it doesn't always work. You can't yell at some people, um, and I don't mean yell, but yeah, they, some people are more, uh, they're just... They don't respond well to yeah, that. Yeah, they don't respond to that, so you know, we, we take different different approaches for that. Sometimes it's a little bit of encouragement or you know, just, hey, great job. Look, sometimes people come in there because they had a shitty day. They don't want you to say shit to them. They just want to go and sweat, yep. and they want to be away from everything that there is. Yep. They don't care about anything else. And look, that's totally fine. You go ahead right there in the corner. Don't worry about anybody else. That's good. As a matter of fact, that has happened to me a lot where people would come up to me and say, hey, coach, listen, today I'm, just, I'm going to do my thing over there in the corner. Don't even worry about me. Or like, don't worry, darling, I got you. To me, that whole people interaction thing and the, and the psychology, and, and it's just – that's one thing that I love about coaching, CrossFit, soccer. You know, I, I coach the, the kids, and um, it, it's just I Very love that, all of that. It is. Yeah, because it's, uh, it, it's again, it, it goes back to why I think we're here. It, it's tough to get in somebody's brain housing group and figure out where they're coming from. How do they react to your, to your stimulus? Is it positive reinforcement? 
some guys that are like, you know, get in my face. I, regardless of how it comes to me, I suck it all in. I appreciate that because I, I understand that there are different ways that uh, motivate people. I, I take it all in. But it's important to pay attention to that. The goal being is to help them appreciate that they are and can be stronger and better than what they are. But you have to put that thought in their brain and, and you've yep. got to cultivate that and redress that with them each time you see them. You know, it, it's a cool thing. It's a very selfish thing to a certain extent because I want to feel good about making other people feel good. It's just a cool place to be, yep. especially when you see them, see that improvement. And then Sam runs up to me now and says, Colonel, my run's getting better. And yep. my, I'm doing better on my sit-ups. And it is phenomenal because you've had a positive influence in somebody else's life. And man, it doesn't, for my not hold, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, definitely. And, and another thing that just comes to my mind too is you do a lot of Spartan races, tough mutters and things of that nature. And we've had lots of conversations just way back in the day before anybody was doing them. Uh, you were the only person that I really knew in my circle that did those kind of things. And when we talked about it, I'm a big runner. I have a pretty strong will. I, I can I can work through a lot of pain and I can do a lot of those crazy things. And I enjoy that kind of stuff. But when you talk to me about the Tough Mudder and all, I was like, nah, that's that's not for me, bro. I'm, yeah. I'm good. Yeah. That's, you, you keep doing what you're doing. But the more I talked about it, you know, I start to think, man, this dude's like 145 years old. And, you know, I, here I am, this young buck. And I was yeah. like, man, I'm, I might have to go do this because maybe I will like it. You felt that you, until that day we showed up in Florida. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, the point I'm getting at is so many people trust you that we had we had a huge group that went. My yeah. wife, who was not a runner, I would have swore and be damned. There's no way in hell she's going to do a Tough mutter ever. Yeah. Um, we had Scott and his wife. Right. I, I, I never would have thought Leslie would have gone through Me that too. either. Uh, we just had a gang of people that it was, went. It was so cool. Because, they, because Colonel said that we're all going to have a good time. And here's the best part about it. The thing that really got it for a lot of us is that, or especially the girls, was that you said, hey, look, we're going to start together. We're going to go through this thing together, and we're all going to finish together. And then Nicole's like, yeah, but I don't run, Colonel. I don't run. And you were like, we're going to start together. We're going to go through the whole thing together, and we're going to finish together. She's like, yeah, but Colonel, but I'm not going to run. I'm going to end up walking. This is this is like 11 miles. And your point is? Yeah. <laughs> like, Nicole, I, I'll, I'll, say, I'll say it again if you want me to. The point is that I'm getting is that, you, you know, you have that um, that love from everybody, that they've got so much faith and trust in you, whether it be, you know, talking to Sam and encouraging her or getting a bunch of us couillons to go out there mm. and go in 40-degree weather. We're about to go do a tough mutter. There's ice mm. on the ground. We're about to get soaking wet. Dude, like, it was, what have we got ourselves into? Remember, that was it was 29. Oh, 29. 29. You're right. And you right. thought it was crazy because we were like two hours before the start time, and I said, look, you know, it's like for, for, for my meetings, if you're later than 15 minutes early for the meeting, then you're late. So better to be early, and, and you, you guys would call me all kinds of son of a bitch. Yeah, I'm going to tell up. you. That was that was literally one of the hardest things I've done. Not because it was a tough mutter. That was actually that part was fun, but I was nervous because there was literally ice on the ground. The whole thing was in the mud, in the water. Yes. And ice and water to me don't mix. Like I don't. It's just <laughs> uncomfortable. But we trusted in you, and we all said, "Hey, look, we're gonna get this to get through this together." And we did. Yeah. We and did. and it wasn't even as bad as we thought. 
but it's because we were mentally prepared, thanks to you, lots of encouragement, and we knew that we were all in it together. Yeah. And again, we weren't fighting a war. We were voluntarily <laughs> right. jumping in this mud like a bunch of ding dongs. I, I could go. I could. Yeah, I can go on and on about it. But it was just. It was a good time. It was a great memory for sure. So you've done other things like. Uh, well, we've done other tough mutters. We've done done one in New Orleans. You've gone all over to do those Spartan races and everything. Yeah. Um, the one. But, I so one of the ones that I did was the Go Ruck. I did the Go Ruck light, and in fact, we had Miss um, Vicky did that. Uh, we did. So Ms. Vicky did that. Um, uh, I think Scott and Nate, I believe did, yeah, that Nate did that as well. So we had a pretty good crew. And so we did the light and then I did the tough and I did the tough and that was about 21 miles and a little over hour, 11 hours worth. And we started off at 10 o'clock at night. It was cold that night. Oh, that's and, true. That's the one that goes through the night. Yeah. Oh, man, that was rough. That, that was probably the most physically demanding thing I've done. All things that I've done in the military included. So we showed up at 10 o'clock at night. I knew it was cold. I said, there's no way they're putting us in the water. Somebody's going to get hypothermia. I'll be damned. The first thing they did was they told us to jump in the fountain. And then we started doing Indian runs and grass drills and just yeah. a bunch of aerobic stuff. And I said... All right, it's yeah, on. We in now. It's on, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. So we had to pick up a telephone pole, and we carried that telephone pole from from City Park all the way through past through Bourbon Street, all the way to the river, and we had to carry that telephone pole throughout the uh, throughout the night. Uh, I won't get into all the details, but it was just incredibly demanding. We were about eight hours in, and my right leg stopped working. It was prior to my operation, and this is probably what led to it. It just stopped working. My my hip was done, and I would grab. The, I was wearing five eleven pants. I would grab the front of my pants leg, and just drag my leg. So the guys that run it there are are military. It's it's designed to help civilians understand a, a esprit de corps and sacrifice and all the things that are uh, akin to what's in the military, uh, particularly for spec ops because most of those guys are. So they knew I was. In, they knew I was in the military. So they come back and check on me and said, "Look, my leg's connected. I'm good, dude. Don't mm-hmm. worry about me. I'm gonna make it." But I was, but that leg was done. I was ruined after that. And yeah, and, I, and that was kind of what I was going to allude coming to next is that, you know, eventually God comes knocking on your door and says, mm-hmm. hey, Colonel. Um, Guess what, dude? Yeah, you're going to have to take a little break. Even before that, you were still working out at the gym, but there was yeah. a lot of things you were, like, trying to warm up and trying to avoid certain things. And we we talked a lot about, yeah. you know, what can we do from for the hip? Something's not right, and you were doing some things. But you got some pretty interesting news after that. Uh, I went to a, to an ortho, and they said your hip needs to be replaced. So the the interesting part of that, uh, in conjunction with my civilian job, and I was I just had this conversation the other day with somebody. It's ironic. My client tasked me two weeks before I was about to have my hip replaced with laying off six people from my project management office. So I'm about to go out on operation to have my hip replaced, and then. During that time, I've got to figure out how I'm going to lay six people off, reconfigure the organization of my team without coordinating with anybody. I couldn't tell them anything because I didn't know who I was going to lay off. That was very tough. It was, uh, it was challenging on a number of different fronts. It was a, it was a bad operation. The, the surgeon screwed up. I think he messed up some nerves. Um, I remember sometimes there was a couple nights like between midnight and about 3 o'clock in the morning that it was pain that was just, it was only bearable because I didn't pass out from it. 
But um, I would literally have a, a, a rag in my mouth and I was screaming in a rag and my family's like freaking out. They've never seen me like this because I have a high threshold for, for pain. And I said, don't bring me to the hospital because all they're going to do is, you know, they're going to give me a shot and refer me to the doctor. Anyway, that was, a, that was a bad experience. He, he screwed it up and, you know, I've had some physical ailments as a result of that. Just to know, you know, when, when life gives you lemons, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, the challenge for me was to try to figure all this stuff out without consulting with my staff that I would normally say, hey, how are we going to figure this out as a team? I didn't have that opportunity. And then when I went back to work, I had to brief, this is what we're going to do. This is the rationale to support it. And then I had to tell every one of those people um, that I was going to lay off and why. And that was the toughest part was I knew I didn't care about the organizational structure. I knew we were going to do fine, but having to tell six people that, that their lives were going to change was, was the toughest part. Cause I, I care very deeply about the people that I work with and my, my circle, you know, as time goes on, kind of, kind of closes us up a little bit because I, I don't have time, nor do I have the, the patience for, for people in my life that are, that are negative and focus on that part. That was the, uh, that was the challenge, but, uh, but I overcame that day and the, the team did great, uh, on the civilian side you know, it was just another challenge for, uh, from the good Lord is this is what you're going to be left with now. What are you going to do, brother? Yeah, exactly. But you've kind of come basically a full recovery because you've done some pretty crazy things since then. Uh, I mean, you're back at CrossFit, jumping, yep. running, doing all kind of stuff. Uh, have you done some races since, uh, since the surgery? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I've done, I did the trifecta for Spartan. So it's three different level races, uh, three to five miles, seven to nine, and um, and 13 to 15, which is the B. So it's a half a marathon with about 35 obstacles, uh, a lot of upper body stuff, and how it differs from the Tough Mudder is the Tough Mudder is an obstacle course, you know, as you know, because you've been through it, and we, you can take your time. Uh, you can walk through the whole course. If you choose not to do an obstacle, that's fine. Walk around it. The Spartan's not that way. You're, right. on, you're on the clock. It's, it's an OCR. It's an obstacle course race. A lot of upper body strength, the swinging from obstacles, pulling things, that sort of thing. And if you cannot negotiate an obstacle or you fail it, you're doing 30 burpees. If you decide right. you're not going to do those 30 burpees, get off the course. So I love that because uh-huh. I love to compete in it. And, yeah. you know, for with uh, pieces, parts that are kind of breaking down these days, it's, it's even that more um, mentally challenging because when the body stops working, that's where the, the positivity and the strength of, of your mental fortitude kicks in. And you either listen to it or you don't. I kind of wanted to move towards uh, where you're headed this week and yeah. why we really had to get this podcast <laughs> in. Um, you're actually moving away. Yeah, I'm, I'm physically moving. Out. So I'm currently the project manager for a company called Sentara. So we provide uh, armed officers who protect the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for the Department of Energy. So I work out of the project management office here in New Orleans. So it's about a 30-minute ride just on the other side of the Huey P. And we have two facilities in Louisiana and two in Texas where the oil is physically stored under the ground. Kind of a cool thing with that is. So they're, they're maintained in underground caverns. The top of the cavern is 2,000 feet below the ground. The bottom of the cavern is 2,000 feet below that. Wow. So you can fit in a few Superdomes, uh, the Eiffel Tower, and, and a few other things. No kidding. So I've been on that project for about 25 years. I did my stint at Dow. Um, that didn't work out. Uh, not a good culture. It wouldn't fit, uh, for the reasons that, you know, uh, and they went back to the SPR and I used to oversee the security contract, design oil spill exercises and, um, 
teaching tactical leadership and that type of stuff. But when I went back, I started working for the security company. Worked my way up. I've been the project manager for for about six years now, but we just recently lost the rebid efforts for the contract. So as as the key member on the team, as a project manager, I have to go. So ironically, and fortunately, uh, my boss called me about two days after we lost the contract and said, hey, I've got a new gig for you. Are you interested? So that new gig is where I'm inevitably going. It's uh, to nuclear fuel services. It's managed by BWXT, and it's where they, uh, they downgrade uh, highly enriched uranium uh, for use with uh, nuclear warheads and, uh, and to propel the Navy's uh, nuclear submarines and, uh, and aircraft carriers. So it's the same company. Uh, but it is in Tennessee. The, the facility is located in Irwin, Tennessee. I just recently put down a deposit on a townhouse I, I've seen on the Internet. Still have to buy some furniture. Still, okay. have, still have to close out this contract that I'm working on, uh, which ends July 30, 31st. But on the 30th at uh, 2 o'clock Friday morning, uh, me, Renee, Patrick, her husband, and, uh, and their son, Killian, and Lauren are going to go with me. So we're going to drive up, uh, get me set up in a townhouse, on Friday and then uh, Monday morning, I start my new job. Nice. Well, congratulations. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're all going to miss you for sure. But we have something, we have a little bit of a going away present, I guess, if for lack of better terms, on Wednesday. It's a great present. I'm looking yeah, forward to it. On Wednesday. So we kind of talked earlier at CrossFit. One of the things that I love is that there's a big uh, military, um, trying to pick the right word, but military driven. I don't know why well, I'm drawing, drawing a blank, yeah. but anyway. Uh, yeah, so we talked. So there's a lot, a lot of, a lot of the workouts are out of respect for exactly uh, what service, what service members do. They're sacrifice. Right, and yeah. we call them hero workouts. Yes. So this Wednesday, we are creating the very first hero workout from River Parish CrossFit, and it's in your honor. We're calling it the Colonel. Obviously, <laughs> uh, it, it's just a fantastic wad that Ray came up with. Uh, we got it's gonna be a 45 minute AM wrap where you're gonna start off with a hundred double unders, and then once you do those hundred double unders, then the AM wrap starts. 800 meter run with a vest or an object, which is right up your alley. Yes. Then you're gonna do 10 pull ups, five deadlifts, which is another another movement that I know you like. Yes. And then up once you're just gonna keep on doing that for 45 minutes. And then 800 meters is in there after that, right? Yeah, 800 meters, 10 pull-ups, oh, yeah, 5 yeah. deadlifts. Okay. So yeah. that you're going to do that for 45 minutes. Then at the completion of that 45 minutes, everyone has 10 tire flips, another go-to for the colonel. <laughs> uh, and it's actually one tire flip for each year of colonel's membership. So that's another trend that CrossFit does is most of the rep schemes or movements or whatever the case may be has something to do with the hero or... Uh, whatever happened in a firefight and things like that. So this one he built for you, which I think is fantastic. The only thing that sucks is I won't be able to be there because I have soccer. You know, <laughs> yeah, we coach right. soccer and stuff like that. But I'll definitely yeah, be there cool. in spirit. Maybe Absolutely. I can, maybe I can like hurt, get there real quick and then just have to go after the first few minutes once y'all start off. But dude, there's so many things that I could say. I, uh, number one, I appreciate you showing up on the podcast and having the conversation again. Uh, I really appreciate the relationship that you and I have built over the past 10 years, whatever it's been, allowing me to come into your family, you coming into my home, hanging out with all of my family. It's just, it's been a blessing. And I think that uh, I'm, I'm definitely a better dad, better husband because of the talks that you and I have had. So oh, thank uh, you, man. 
much appreciation. Big props to you uh, for sure. Oh, thank you, man. So first of all, I mean, I, just, I, I greatly appreciate that. And, and, you know, as I said, I take a lot of, I take a lot of pride and put a lot of effort into trying to do this. You know, I'm looking at you um, eye to eye right now. You know, security is what I do and I'm good at that. I'm good at a number of things, but what I take most pride in is my effort to try to have, to provide a positive influence and motivate others to pull more out of themselves than, than they realize. And that positive benefit that they see is, is really the goal for me. And, and that's what I, I feed off. And, it, and it's such a cool thing. So, you know, that word hero, that that's, I have an issue with that. Yeah, I, I get that you know, part. I get that uh, part. And I, and I appreciate that. So I'll just say that it is, it is very humbling to me. Uh, I mean that generally I'm not a guy that uh, I don't blow smoke. Uh, I don't believe in kissing butt. I don't believe in being politically correct. I believe in being tactful and prudent. But there's a big difference between that and PC. And, and I think that um, it served me well, and it's a comfortable place to be. And, you know, just like this wad, and I appreciate uh, Ray doing this. I mean, it follows my MO for doing business. It's keep it simple, man. I'm a simple guy and the most simple things in life, the most basic things are things that are most important. And that's what I hold on to. And and I think there's so many people who allow their lives to become complicated and they lose track of themselves and their ability to help others going back to those two things of why we're around. And that's one of the cool things about CrossFit is that it grounds you. It has helped ground me more. It's provided me an opportunity to push myself. And I don't know to what extent I would have pushed myself had I not had CrossFit. So, yeah, I've done a bunch of cool things. But I'll tell you, I've been just as much a student as I've attempted to try to motivate others by what I try to put in every single day. So, man, I I love you. I I love my family at CrossFit. It's been a phenomenal experience. Uh, I'm gonna be a geo bachelor for a year. The family's gonna come up, and after, yeah, uh, at some point, uh, the family's gonna move up there. But as I told Ray, um, I do work every other Friday. I mean, I have every other Friday off, so uh, I'll be back down and and slip in for a okay. Friday workout or or Saturday wad or something. And it's not over. It's just gonna be nice. a little greater time and distance. Right. Exactly. Well, like I said, man, just thanks for coming in. Thanks for sharing Thank your wonderful you, man. I appreciate stories. You. And uh, I know they're going to have a lot of blessed people out there in Tennessee that's going to you know, latch on to you real quick. So you're going to have to find another CrossFit gym while you're over there. So well, keep it going. Look you know? to, I was just talking to somebody today. I'm, I'm going to take a little break. I'm going to take okay. a couple of weeks off. And the reason being is because I have no extracurricular activities. I have no honeydews, no maintenance yep. in the townhouse. I can dive into the work. I owe that to the people that I'm going to lead when I go there. So I can go in earlier, I can stay later, and when I get off, it's my time, but I don't want to be, if I'm a member of a box, then I have to be there for a class time, right, and right. I don't want to be tied to that clock. It, so this gives me a chance to let some some wounds kind of re- recover, some yep. injuries. I'll still keep doing my thing. There's mountains all around the place. Yep. Bringing my bike, and yep. I'm bringing weights and, nice. and all that kind of stuff, uh, but I'll, I'll probably just after a couple of weeks... Uh, Okay. Join a regular gym so yep. I can put some meat back in some areas mm-hmm. that I'm uh, missing. But, you know, I'm not going to be far from CrossFit. Yeah, definitely not. No, I'm coming back. Definitely not. Well, yeah. uh, you stay safe out there. Yeah. Uh, I wish you all the best. Thank you, uh, I'm sure you're going to have a successful career there. And until next time, say hi to your mom and them for me. Bye.